Reading from Romans 2, verses 1 through 12. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteousness judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil for first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the knowledge and the training and leadership that you have provided us. You show us and give us a path to uh, holy righteousness that one day we will be there and live with you in eternity. Father, we ask that you would be with Pastor as he shares your word uh, this morning, and we pray that our hearts are open and that uh, the Spirit fills us so that we can walk away with a message of how we should live our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 2, please. Romans chapter 2, if you're not already there. And uh, Daniel, through reading our text today, um, something jumped out to me is that text that he read has never made its way into our praise and worship service as one of the scriptures that we read between songs. Not sure how closely you were paying attention to the words there, but the theme clearly is God's wrath. It's a bit negative. I believe it is written to uh, mainly to individuals who are not saved as the Apostle Paul starts out. And when we think of these passages here, I am challenged with this fact that I've never heard anybody say, you know, one of my life verses is they've never mentioned one of these first 11 verses in Romans 2. Nothing here jumps out to us as something that we want to grab a hold of. As I was going through the songs and even the songs that, remind, that are to point us to communion, which we do, we'll be doing at the end, I couldn't help but notice the different themes that we like to highlight about our salvation, even about the crucifixion. There are some things that we enjoy singing about more than others, talking about more than others. This one here is on the low end. This is not one here that, that we want to talk about a whole lot. And yet it is in God's word, and it is an extremely fundamental 
um, piece of instruction that we need to hold on to, not just at the point of our conversion, but also throughout our salvation. We are right now into my favorite sports season, and that's basketball season. Um, That's my favorite sport, and I enjoy watching the teams, and I enjoy uh, observing some of the drama that goes on and seeing who's going to win. I can remember one interview with a coach from a few years ago, and he said something that, that took me off guard, and that's likely why it's stuck in my memory banks. What he said was, um, he was a very successful coach, top 10 team, and they asked him about something about his practices. And he said, well, likely we're going to spend most of our time going over the fundamentals, is what he said. And I'm thinking, you need to you know, develop some trick plays, you need to be, you know, prepped up for, you know, this uh, high, high level thing here to play against the best teams in the country in college. And yet what he said was, is we'll probably spend most of our time going over the fundamentals. I thought that was curious. Um, as he said that, it makes sense to me because how many times do we see someone with a great amount of ability or can do some incredible things and yet the fundamentals aren't there. Probably the best picture of this is if you go into any gymnasium where there's young people that are practicing, as soon as you give them some free time to do what they want, you do not see them practicing layups. What do you see them practicing when they can do whatever they want? They shoot from half court, right? And how many of those shots do they make? Sometimes none of them. And when they make one, it goes in. They think they're the best player in the gym. You don't need to practice those half-court shots. That's not things that you're going to be using all the time. When we look at a theme like today, I'm not apologizing for it when we talk about God's righteous judgment. But what I want, to con- what I want you to consider is this is a fundamental of your faith that you not only need to be aware of to come to salvation, but we should be constantly reminded of it. As we look into God's word, what we'll see today is that there is something within all men and women that leads them to judge the sins of others as worse than the sins of themselves. And unfortunately, I think there's something within Christians that leads us either to forget how bad our sins were that we were forgiven of, or else get to the place where we minimize them. Maybe we'll see somebody else, and maybe we'll say it out loud, or maybe we'll just sit on the thought. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's a dangerous place to get to. It's a dangerous place to get to. And even if you're forgiven and you're going to heaven, if you're walking through this world with the idea that that one who's not forgiven and not going to heaven, that their sin is somewhat of a more of offense to God than your sin was, then you have left that place of complete humility that you needed to start at to get to salvation. We're going to come across a word picture here in Romans chapter 2 that does make me smile. Not much in this passage makes me smile. But there is a word picture here that makes me smile. It's found in verse number three where it seems like the preacher is calling somebody out in the crowd. And I wasn't sure how to approach this here because I don't want to embarrass anybody with us. Probably some of you um, get distracted easily in a service when somebody, you know, gets up and walks out or when somebody's cell phone goes off, you get distracted easily. Um, Can you imagine if there was a preacher 
and he was preaching. And in the crowd, you had a few people saying amen. But you had one individual toward the back that seemed to be just saying amen quite a bit more. I mean, he would say something pretty negative and pretty harsh from the Bible. And there's a guy from the back. Amen, brother. Preach it. Give it to him. Can you imagine if there was a preacher and he knew the fellow that was saying that? And he knew the thing that he was addressing in the Bible. And if he stopped and said, you there, third row from the back, that keeps saying amen. I'm not sure why you're saying anything. You're the one that I'm talking to. I didn't pick third row from the back for any particular reason, so don't. We see that in verse number three. We're going to read it in just a second. I think this, in my opinion, I think this is a passage mainly that is talking about unbelievers, directed towards unbelievers. This is going to help us to know where Paul's going if we can remember why he said what he said. Do you remember, those of you who were here for the introduction to Romans, what the main problem is in the church? There are some people in the church that think they're better than the others, right? So you got the the carnivores on this side and the herbivores on this side. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go back and listen to the sermon. All right? People were judging others. At least I'm not as bad as them. And it was so obvious that it got into the Apostle Paul. And Paul is going to break it down to the point where they are going. he, He wants them to get to the point where they say, you know what? When God saved me, my sin was just as vile, just as wicked, just as horrible in God's eyes as their sin. And that's why he begins with the judgment of God in the book of Romans. Last week, we spent some time talking about some specifics, um, some specific sins that he mentions and God's wrath on those and why God's wrath is justified. We need to not shy away from the fact that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. Hopefully when you come to communion today, that will come through. Thank you that you're a just God. And if you're observing communion because you're a believer, that means that 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 wrath of God was not poured poured out upon you, but it was poured, poured out upon Jesus on the cross. He took that for you. It's appropriate, I think, when we're passing the elements to think about the sacrifice of of Christ on the cross. Practically, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three mistakes that religious people make. When I use the word religious people, I'm not using it in a positive way. I'm using it in a negative way. I know there are uh, at least one place in the Bible where it talks about they were religious in a positive sense. But here I'm talking about people that are not believers and yet they are religious people. So this is not the, as my Uncle Jack used to say, the dregs of humanity, the, most, the worst people that you could ever find in this world. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about unbelievers who have a moral code. And three mistakes that they make. Mistake number one, playing judge while they are being judged. Playing judge while they are being Judged. Let's look at the first three verses again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, 
That you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Can't you picture him just calling somebody out here? Do you suppose you're getting off the hook? Oh man. And as he says this, he is addressing what I believe are religious type people, people with a moral code. If I can say this, people who agree with the justice of God as long as it's directed towards the sins that they agree with. When they look around them and they see people that are living in a way that is obviously wrong, they want to cast judgment upon them. And we find out in the very first word uh, a good connection to why this is a mistake. Because the very first word in chapter 2 is the word therefore. And as we oftentimes like to say, whenever you find the word therefore, you need to go back and see what the word therefore is there for. We're not going to read the verses, but what we're going to do is we're going to just remind you that there is just now a laundry list of sins that follows the detail of other sins right above it. And I'll refer to those in a little bit. But it seems like as Paul writes this, he says, do you really think that you can cast judgment upon them when you're guilty for the same thing? And that, you know, that, that might need some explanation. Well, how are they really casting judgment if they're doing the same things? I think the teaching of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is very, very helpful here. Perhaps you remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount last year, and when Jesus Christ would list a sin, and then he would list something else that could be done, and he'd basically say they're the same thing, right? Do you remember that list? He would basically say that, yes, sex, there is sexual sin out there. And he just listed that in verse number one. There is sexual sin. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he who has looked upon a woman with lust and committed adultery in his heart, he is what? Guilty. He also talks about hate. There's likely that maybe someone that could be addressed here would judge others that would murder and I think that's appropriate for us to look down upon murderers. And yet he says here, trying to bring them to a point where they realize they were drawn from the same pit, these two different sides. He says, you are just as guilty. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the sin of hate is just as bad as the sin of murder in the eyes of God. You are guilty. And so can you imagine him calling out Amen Charlie there in the back and as he lists these sins of lust and of adultery, hate and murder, can you imagine the person and the response he might have? Now, the religious person without Christ, what he wants to do is he wants to place himself behind the judge's bench with God, right? With Jesus Christ. He wants to get back there and say, can you believe that, Jesus? And take a look out at someone else's sin. And we need to be certain. I'm going to give you just a quick application right now because you want to make sure you're not in this group, right? Does everybody here want to make sure you're not in this group? You don't want to be in this group. Where you are falsely judging others, you're guilty of that, you're not forgiven. Standing in the place of judging someone when you yourself are being judged, you don't want to be in this place. And here is the litmus test for you not being in this position of trying to sneak behind the judge's bench. 
The litmus test is you need to, at some point in your life, have come to the realization that you are nothing. It might be a a prayer that sounds something like this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Everyone has to start with that place. God, will you please have mercy on me, a sinner? And everyone, all the believers in Rome that Paul is addressing, they all have to remind themselves of this. And not only do we need to be there, but it's my contention that we need to remind ourselves regularly. We sing songs like, I believe it's Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a, what? Wretch like me. It's not false humility. It's you recognizing that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that would get you favor with God. So we see a couple words here, or at least one word here that I think is important to point out. Some of your versions have the word think there in our text. Instead of suppose, it has think. That word think, the idea is our word for logic. And I think that we can't separate this. Don't try arguing with the world by saying that they can't judge sin. Because it's logical that if someone hurts another, that we judge them for that, right? Doesn't it make sense if someone uh, steals, that people on the outside might say that is wrong? Don't tell someone who's not a believer that they're not able to judge these things. Because there is logic involved. But what Paul is pointing out with this individual is that there's logic involved. He is being logical, but he is not being theological. You see, he is pointing out the things that are wrong that he wants to stand and judge. But what is he leaving out? He's leaving out his own fault, his own sin. And then one thing I want to remind us of about the author, about Paul, who wrote this book. Because Paul, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see he has a history of calling out people's sin. Some of you might think right away, man, I wish I could get away with that. Wish I could call out people's sin. I see it sometimes and I want to tap my foot and point my finger in their face. And I'm wondering if I should say anything. Let me just give us a reminder about something of the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul, while we do see him pointing out people's sin, I mean, just in chapter 1, we see a list of sins that he points out. The pattern of the Apostle Paul, when it came to his approach to sin, was yes, he would have a stand against sin. But when it came to sin, he had an opinion about himself. Maybe some of you will remember what the Apostle Paul thought of himself when it came to what level of sinner He was. He said, he mentioned the word sinners, and then he said, of whom I am chief. I'm the worst offender. So when Paul writes this, understand his attitude. And when we come to the end, I'm going to give you some takeaways. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. It's not just false humility. It's a correct assessment of who he was, how much he had offended God. And we all need to have that. So mistake number one, playing judge while being judged. Mistake number two is misunderstanding God's kindness. And we see that right away in the next few verses. Misunderstanding God's kindness. Look in verses four and five. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Aren't you glad you came today after reading a portion like that? That's rough, isn't it? You don't lead with that when you're talking about your faith with someone. There's a day of wrath that is coming. And yet for us, we have to know this. He is is addressing someone here who is religious. And mistake number two is misunderstanding God's kindness. And very, very simply, the idea here is that these individuals hate the badness of others more than they love God's goodness. Because God's forgiveness is available to all. Anyone that you encounter in this world can turn to God for forgiveness. And a dangerous place to be, a dangerous place for us to slide back into as believers is for us to relish a little bit more that judgment of God that is coming upon those sinners more than we relish the forgiveness of God. I think that is a good picture that's here. They hate others' badness more than they celebrate God's goodness. We see the word forbearance there. The word forbearance is just withholding judgment. Let me give one quick illustration about that. When we see God withholding judgment um, throughout the Bible, there are many illustrations, but let me point us to a familiar one back in the book of Genesis where God, when he told them that the wickedness of the world was so bad was that he was going to send a flood to wipe out the entire world. He found a man who feared him, and so he told Noah, I want you to build uh, an ark, and I'm going to save your family through that, save mankind through that ark. It's really, with, some folks think of this as a childhood story. This is a, this is a tough story if you get into the details. Every human being in the world being judged and killed by God, except for Noah and his family. Noah immediately becomes obedient and he starts to build that ark. We have some New Testament commentary on the story of Noah that gives us the idea that Noah was a a preacher throughout that time. Preaching to people that the judgment of God is coming. No one responded to that preaching. Does anybody remember about how long it took him to build that ark? About how long he would have been preaching righteousness. About how long, here's my point, God was withholding his wrath. It was coming. They had a preacher to talk about it. And it took Noah about 120 years to build that ark. And he withheld his judgment all that time. Our God is very, very patient. Our God, it says here, is forbearing. And when we look at that, we need to understand that we should be thankful for that. We see the word patience there, and we find a definition right after that word patience, where it says storing up wrath before judgment comes. So he's storing it up right now. And so if anyone ever comes to you with the difficult question about why God allows things to happen in this world that are just wrong, even with nature, you'll see sometimes hundreds of people killed in some kind of a natural catastrophe. 
Or you will see um, uh, maybe terrorists or people um, that have just bad intentions do something and people will die and there will be a horrible result. And some people will say, if there is a good God, then where, why isn't he doing something about that? We need to understand that this text right here helps us with that. He is storing up wrath and that wrath will be poured out upon sin. And yet, why is he waiting? Why is he storing it up? It says right there in our text. Why is he withholding his wrath? Why is he being patient? The reason why he is doing that is because he's giving more people an opportunity to respond to grace. To respond by coming to him for salvation. That's why he is waiting. Our God is so good. He is so patient. Can you imagine Amen Charlie in the back as this text gets read? What did we say right there? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Amen, brother. Give it to him. You are the one I am speaking to, Paul would say they are celebrating the wrath of God more than the patience and love and forgiveness of God, which is what hopefully you are able to enjoy. Let me give you one quick illustration about this, and then we'll go to our last point. When we look to heinous crimes in this world, like I said before, it doesn't surprise us that people can judge that as wrong. If you're going to have any kind of a society, you have to have rules and structure. God talks about leaders of uh, societies and government, and even if they are not followers of Christ, they are still there for a specific reason, and one of those main reasons is to um, have law and order in the land. When we, look back, when we look back at the history of America, there's, um, there are several mass murders that have made the headlines. And some of you will remember one that I'm going to mention here just in a second. Because there was a murderer who killed, he kidnapped and he raped and he killed over 30 women. His name was Ted Bundy. How many of you know the name Ted Bundy? Raise your hand. Okay. Horrific. And um, Ted Bundy, when he did these things, he was, um, he was given the, the death penalty while he was waiting to go to the execution chair, which he eventually did. There is a testimony given by a credible source. Um, he met with Dr. James Dobson, who was with Focus on the Family at the time. Dr. Dobson went in and talked to Ted Bundy. And as far as Dr. James Dobson could tell, Ted Bundy understood the gospel he had gotten to this place where he cried out, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. And from what James Dobson could see, Ted Bundy was converted and was changed. Now, he was a sociopath. He was extremely intelligent. And so it could be that he was fooling someone, but that's the testimony that he gives that this person turned his life over to Jesus Christ with a few days that he had left. Here's my point. Can you guess what the reaction in the press was when they heard that Ted Bundy had turned his life over to Christ, was being forgiven, and now 
would be going to heaven. What do you think the reaction in the press was? Oh, they were angry. This is not right. We can judge. This deserves hellfire. And they hated that idea. The idea that they could be forgiven was something that they could not handle. And I just want to remind you one more time, you need to be at the point where you don't think that you are any better than somebody else. It's a dangerous road to go down. The reason for God's patience towards sin right there in verse 4, to lead you to repentance. And then let's look at number 3 quickly. Number 3, the third mistake. Mistake number 3, reversing key priorities. Reversing key priorities. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 for us. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, for some of you, as you go through that text, and even if you're reading it on your own, the beautiful book of Romans, there are some people who might come across that text and they might have cause for confusion. Is this saying that we are saved by works? Anybody read that passage and kind of, is that what Paul is saying here? At least ask that question. Is he saying we're saved by work? Because it kind of looks like he's saying we're saved by works. Okay, class, what is the best commentary on the Bible? It is the Bible. And so whenever you find a section in the Bible that might be confusing to you, you need to go to other texts in the scriptures and confirm. The Bible, you study it through as much as you want. As long, and, and please do. The Bible never contradicts itself. It never does. We can have confidence in this book that God has given us. Is there a reason for concern here? Salvation by works? No. No. He's not saying here that we are saved by works. Now, I will tell you that salvation does come on the basis of work. But it comes on the basis of someone else's work. And who is that? Jesus Christ. And so when we look to this, Paul is not teaching that we are saved by our good works, but here in this passage instead, here's the word, you can write it down if you want, he is saying that we are recognized by our works. You will be recognized, whether good or bad. And then just quickly, verse 7, he gives the motive. Verse 7, there is a motive in our life of either working for God's glory or else in verse 8, we have a motive of the things in our life of working on things that are involved self-seeking. Either what you're doing in your life is trying to promote yourself, improve yourself, help yourself, or else what you're doing in your life is for the glory of God. Okay, what can we do with this? What can you do? I've got three great applications right from this text. You might want to write them down because when you come across it later on, you're going to be thinking, this is a tough text. Is there anything positive here? Now, I mentioned that 
I believe these verses are being written to, this is referring to unbelievers, is, is my thinking as I study it through. But I also think that every one of us, every one of us, including you, you, old man, is in that place where we can slide back. And you're not going to lose your salvation. You didn't do anything to get it, so you can't do anything to lose it. You're not going to lose your salvation, but what can happen is we can change our thinking. The devil might not be able to get our soul and have us for eternity, but it can get us to be ineffective. And here's something that, some things that we can do to help block that. A, don't slide back into being a judgmental person. I'm about out of time, but I mean, could I preach a whole sermon on this? On being judgmental? You need to not allow yourself to be a judgmental person. And just very, very practically, you need to, when you look at others and there's a tendency to judge, you'll see something and you'll question something and you're wondering what's going on. My advice to you is, instead of thinking the worst of others, think well of them. Instead of thinking the worst of others, think well of them. And, and, and there's a practical reason for that. Because you can see the outside. You can see that action. You can hear what they said. You can see where they went and walked into. You can observe this. We can observe everything on the outside and come to a conclusion and possibly get judgmental. And that is not your place, oh man. And I need to say, oh woman, as well. Because while you see on the outside, God, who is the righteous judge, sees where? He sees upon the heart. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be wise in this, that you shouldn't be wise to things going on around you, but think well of others instead of thinking the worst of them. And God looks upon the heart, and that is his place to judge. Next, B, um, these are a couple tips for when others are thinking you're judgy. So I said the Apostle Paul. He gives lists of sins. You guys, none of you is called to be an apostle. I can say that from what I understand of the scriptures. None of you is an apostle, all right? Some of you might stand in a place of leadership. Some of you might, st- some of you might stand in a place um, of you know, authority, possibly. But I want to encourage you with this idea of some tips. If someone thinks you're being judgy, there are some things that you need to keep in mind. First of all, we went over this in detail. Keep alert to your similar guilt. You are guilty. You are deserving of hellfire. Keep alert to your similar guilt and to your pardon. So always keep that in mind when you're judging somebody on the other side. And then also very practically, make the message of forgiveness louder than the message of condemnation. I'm not saying we don't talk about hell. In fact, when I get cards or letters, it is not uncommon that someone thanks me for not leaving hell out of my preaching. Because some of you appreciate that because it's in the Bible, right? Having said that, we need very much so to make the message of forgiveness louder than the message of condemnation. You can say, I stood in a place where I was deserving of judgment, but I've been forgiven. And praise the Lord for that. So just keep those things in mind. So practically, when someone who, as far as you know, is not a Christian, says something like, who are you to judge me? Don't respond right away. Don't, you need to check your motives. 
and want for that person who you're having that conversation with, want for them to have the same forgiveness. Here's how you need to view them. You need to view them as, okay, so someone, you don't think they're a believer. They say who you are to judge me. Here's the thought I want you to take with you. View them as a future convert. This person is a future convert. The forgiveness of God is just as available to them as it was to me. And so we're having this conversation right now when they're on this side of salvation. They're going to be a convert. What can you say that will lead them to that point? And then number three, very quickly, have the priority of God's glory with every area of life. Have the priority of God's glory with every area of life. In verses 7 and 8, we saw there was God's glory for a motive. We saw there was self-seeking for a motive. And so very, very simply, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to what? The glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with the wonderful privilege that you hear us No opportunity for you to hear us except for the work done by Christ on the cross and that we would turn to you for forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we thank you now that we can come to this place to observe communion. We would ask that you would allow us to observe this wonderful time as you said, do this. Jesus Christ said, do this until I come back. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.